Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that showing us that serving him is is perfect freedom. And we pray that you would give us the joy of that freedom. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes to see him, our ears to hear him, our hearts to receive him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the past couple of weeks, the most amazing thing has been taking place in our home. Our seven-week-old daughter, Daisy, has begun to intentionally smile at us. And I'm not talking about those unconscious Uh, smiles that babies flash in their sleep, but the intentional smile that comes across your face when you recognize someone you know. She's seeing us for the first time and she's actually smiling about it. There are a few things like it. Apart from the sheer joy of seeing our, our child smile in response to her recognition of our face, there's something much more profound taking place in that moment though. Daisy is, and and to some extent I am as well, discovering herself. In our mutual gaze, Daisy is discovering that she belongs to me. I'm her daddy. And Pauline's her mama. And she communicates her recognition of this fact by smiling at us. She's a daughter with two loving parents. And she's learning that there are others as well. She's our third child, for there are two siblings, a brother and a sister, who love to stare at her as well. And pretty soon, Daisy will discover her name, for she'll begin to realize that when we look at her, we often say the same word over and over and over again, Daisy, that must be my name. And so it will go on this way for for much of Daisy's life will teach her that the thing in between and just below her eyes is her nose. We'll gently touch it with our finger and we'll say, nose. And watching our finger with crossed eyes, she'll eventually realize that the thing these strange people keep touching must be a nose on my face. As Daisy grows up in our home, Pauline and I will intentionally and often unintentionally shape who she is who she understands herself to be, her, her place in this world that we've brought her into. It's the story of every child, or at least it should be. Deprive a child of this loving gaze that gives context and meaning to her life and that child will be emotionally damaged, right? Let them figure it out on their own and they'll be lost. As Esther Meek says, one of my seminary professors, we find ourselves in the gaze of the other. And this morning we come to a story of a woman who is in the process of discovering herself and the world around her by positioning herself strategically in the gaze of Jesus. Jesus has been welcomed into the house of Mary and Martha. They were sisters. And as Jesus settled into a chair by the hearth, Martha could be heard skittering about here and there. She tidied up and prepared the veggies for dinner and and filled the dishwasher and threw over a load of laundry from the washer to the dryer. Meanwhile, Mary positioned herself at the feet of Jesus and was listening to him. 
And it's significant that verse 39 tells us specifically that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet because this is the position and posture that a disciple assumed when learning from a great teacher, a rabbi as the Jews call them. The apostle Paul was arrested in the temple in Acts 22. He was given, by, given the chance to defend himself. And in his defense, in verse three, he said this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul described his education at taking place, as taking place at the feet of Gamaliel. It was the position of a student to a teacher. And it was the position that Mary now assumed in relation to Jesus. Mary was there to learn from Jesus about the kingdom that he claimed to be introducing into the world, to be setting up in the midst of the world. And she had heard about the ways in which he had redefined family, right? So that a a common faith in God was a stronger bond than blood. She had heard of him healing the sick and raising the dead and calming a storm with a word, feeding 5,000 with only five loaves of bread and two fish. This man was living in and talking about a world that was drastically different from the world that Mary knew. And so she put herself in position to learn from him and to learn about herself. And the first thing she learned about Jesus' kingdom was not from something Jesus said, but from something that he didn't say. Jesus didn't tell Mary to go away. Even though she was a woman, Jesus didn't send her away. Right? To a people living in 2021, it's expected that Jesus would receive this woman. Right? But as scholars point out, in this period, Jewish women were normally cast in the role of domestic performance in order to support the instruction of men rather than as persons who were themselves engaged in study. The expectation at that time that this scene unfolded would have been for Jesus to send Mary away, to join Martha, but he didn't. Instead, he welcomed her. He applauded her. He encouraged her. In the kingdom Jesus has established, there's no preference or priority given to men over women. All are welcome to learn from him and to be trained in the ways of his kingdom that they might be equipped to proclaim the gospel. Which is that whether you are male or female, black, white, Hispanic, influential or inconsequential, Jesus welcomes you to himself by grace alone. And he gives you an identity that, as Jesus puts it in verse 42, cannot be taken away from you. It's an identity far greater and more fundamental than any other marker by which the world measures your worth. For through faith in Christ, you become a beloved child of the living God. In other words, you are found through him. You discover yourself in his loving gaze. And in his love, you become lovely. This was certainly Mary's experience. As Jesus delighted in her presence, she felt the weight of her worth as a person, sitting there at his feet. And the exceptional nature of Jesus' welcome is, is highlighted by Martha, Mary's sister. 
While, while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, Martha is frantically running around, fulfilling those domestic duties that were expected of women. Verse 40 says that she was distracted by her many tasks. And in this frenzied, frenzied state, she approached Jesus and in front of Mary asked him in verse 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. To which Jesus rather surprisingly replied, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by, by many things, but there's need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. To Martha's astonishment, Jesus took Mary's side. He called her choice to sit at his feet as a disciple the better part, or as many translate it, the better portion. His response is remarkable and unexpected, but what does he mean by calling Mary's choice the better portion? Well, here's what he doesn't mean, right? Jesus is not saying that we should all quit our day jobs in order to study the scriptures all day long, right? Just to sit there. He isn't, in other words, condemning activity. In fact, if you look at the story just prior to this interaction with Mary and Martha, Jesus' last words are go and do. He's not condemning doing. He's also not ranking professions. He's not saying this is better than that. That the, the, the woman or the man who chooses an academic life is better than the woman or man who runs a home, right? He's not grading or assigning value to career choices here. What Jesus is responding to is the apparent anxiety produced by Martha's need to be seen and affirmed, right? The text makes a great deal of marshal, mar, marshals. Martha's emotional state in this story. Verse 40 tells us that she was distracted by her many tasks. In verse 41, Jesus calls her worried or anxious. And again, he says she's distracted, which might also be translated as troubled. Her inner feelings have her distracted. And her emotional state comes out when she approaches Jesus to ask him if he even cares about her. Do you see me? It reveals Martha's great insecurity. As one commentator points out, Martha's speech is centered on me talk. Four times in two short sentences, she mentions herself. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. Her question betrays her motivations. She appears to be acting as host with all her flurrying about, but it turns out she's doing the work not out of love for her guest, but for herself, that her guest will notice her. She's concerned only for herself. She's driven not by a fullness, but by an emptiness. She's desperately trying to fill through the approval, affirmation, and applause of others. And when she doesn't get that approval and attention, she gets depressed and angry. She asks Jesus, don't you care about me? And she looks scornfully at Mary, slothful Mary. For Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet in perceived condemnation of Martha. Mary doesn't even say anything in this scene. But Martha is so sensitive and her identity is so fragile that Mary's silence, her lack of vocal support is taken as personal offense 
And so Martha must condemn Mary in order to justify herself. Martha comes across as angry and isolated and fragile and and full of self-pity in this interaction with Jesus and Mary. But it's because she believes that her worth lies in what she does. Her value as a person is dependent upon people noticing her. It's precisely what Charles Taylor, I mentioned him last week, the Canadian philosopher says, happens to those who try to construct their own identities from within. Taylor says that if you form your own identity, in other words, if you turn in on yourself to discover who you are, then you will be a deeply insecure and fragile, anxious and angry person. You'll be like Martha. Because if you're the sole determiner of your identity and you come out from within yourself to declare who I am, then you need, you desperately need the world to not only notice you but affirm you. Your sense of self-worth is hanging in the balance, which is dangerous because it is inevitable that if you vulnerably look to the world for their affirmation, that you're going to get some who ignore you, some who disagree with you, and some who do or say things far more painful than mere disagreement. And each and every one of those reactions will register as personal rejection and hatred. This is why today we can't engage in meaningful debate in which we disagree with one another because disagreement is tantamount to personal rejection. It isn't just that someone holds a different view, it's that this person hates you. But you feel that way because you're trying to form your own identity. And Jesus is calling you out of that before it destroys you. Look at what it did to Martha. She became competitive. My sister has left me. Tell her to help me. Martha was was trying to pressure Mary to join her so she could validate her own choice. She She was dejected and depressed, questioning even the love of God. Don't you care for me? Of course he cares. But his love is detached from any performance that we do to impress him. It's by grace, but grace is offensive to the person trying to carve out their own identity for grace requires that God accepts people who disagree with you, and that's not okay. She was exhausted. We've already pointed out Martha's emotional state, distracted and anxious, troubled, because you must never falter in your self-belief or in the confidence that you're correct in your declaration of self-identity. It's an exhausting task. She assumes a moral high ground that's based on her own ethic rather than the values of the kingdom of God. Martha tells God what to do, for it's obvious to her that she's in the right and Mary's in the wrong. She's become self-righteous and she can only be disillusioned and disappointed when Jesus refuses to comply and he instead defends and applauds Mary's decision by calling it the better portion. Jesus is not condemning you, but he's inviting you, as he did Martha, into the better portion. There's a better way to be known. There's a better way to discover yourself, to know who you are, and that is in the gaze of Jesus Christ, by positioning yourself at his feet 
and listening to what he says about you rather than what you say about yourself. See, Mary had the privilege of actually sitting at Jesus' feet, but we metaphorically can sit at Jesus' feet when we open the scriptures and we read it not so much as a, a puzzle to be solved or a text to be mastered, but as a means of encounter. Right? Hebrews calls the scripture living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It exposes you so that you might know yourself as God sees you. This is the, the work of the Holy Spirit who brought together the text we have inherited and now lives within the saints in order to lead us to and keep us in Jesus. Right? Sit at Jesus' feet. Spend time daily meditating on the word of God and you will find yourself in the loving gaze of Jesus Christ. He sees you as you are with all your sin and all your complexity and all your confusion and all your ugliness and yet he loves you. That's the gospel. As Tim Keller says, in coming to Jesus, you will discover that you are far worse than you believed, but at the same time, far more love than you can imagine. Your worth is found in his love of you, and that can never be taken from you. His love can fill you up, right, so that you can experience the exact opposite of what Martha demonstrated in this story. The psalmist in, in Psalm 16 catalogs the experience of the, the person who, cho- who chooses the better portion. For if you look at the psalm printed in your bulletin, that's precisely how this person describes himself in verse five. The Lord is my portion and my cup. This person feeds on Jesus. They find their identity in him. They, he defines them. And it is bred in them and it will breed in you too deep humility. Instead of self-righteousness, the person who finds their identity in Christ can admit they're wrong. When confronted with disagreement, they're not personally offended but can weigh the merits of the critique and even change for they are secure in Christ. They already admit, as the psalmist does in verse two, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Their worth is not compromised by their failures or shortcomings, for God is their worth. He is their goodness. The one who makes the Lord their, their portion is content with their position, does not need to compete in order to stake their claim. The psalmist is able to delight in the holiness and success of others. In verse three, he says that he delights in the noble and holy people around him. The successes of others don't make him bitter. As for him, he's content with his position because his position is in Christ regardless of his circumstances in life. The Lord is my chosen portion He says in verse five, his chosen portion and his cup, the Lord holds his lot, which means that his life is in God's hands. Therefore, he can confess that the boundary lines have fallen for him in pleasant places, for he is found within the kingdom of God, the eternal and blissful kingdom that will endure throughout eternity, long past when this world will burn out and is spent. He is in Christ and a citizen of his kingdom. What else could he want? 
Right? The one who finds their identity in Christ also is filled with confidence and resolve. The, the psalmist says things like, I shall not be moved in verse eight. And my body rests secure in verse nine. He is firm, steadfast, immovable, not anxious, troubled, and distracted like Martha. Because if Christ died for us, he'll never deny us, but will raise us up on the last day. His opinion, his vouching for us, is the only one that matters. And as we wait for him to come again, his love and our security in him gives us the firmness and clarity to live holy and pure and righteous lives before him as we wait. As the psalmist says in verse four, he will not even take the names of false gods on his lips for there's no need for any other God. When we possess and know the true God who in turn knows us and holds us in his loving gaze. May you find yourself in the loving gaze of our God and so experience the joy, contentment, and peace of being known and loved by him. It's truly the better portion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.